Good morning. It's great to be with you this morning. After uh, the last few weeks, we've spent introducing our 2018 theme, which is Get Out of the Boat, Living Uncomfortably. This Sunday, we're going to return to our series from the book of Romans. Today, we'll be in the sixth chapter of Romans, so this will be a great time to grab your Bible and turn there. Romans chapter 6. Speaking of our theme, our uncomfortable challenge for this week was to invite someone from Netherwood Park to your home, someone who's never shared a meal in your home before, invite them over to enjoy table fellowship with you. Kathy and I did invite some people over to our home, and we've got a picture. That is the crew that we invited over. We stepped out of the boat and invited them over. They stepped out of the boat and invited us over. We got out of the boat. Now we're out of food, so... We'll be taking a special collection at the end of services to help replenish us. No, not really. It wasn't that bad. We had a great time, though. It was great having them over. We enjoyed a meal, enjoyed conversation, played some games, and then they stayed well past our bedtime. Like, what did you guys leave, 9.15? Something like that. But, yeah, it was, it was really late. I know that this challenge, probably more than a lot of the others, makes a lot of us really uncomfortable. But I do want to encourage you to take your focus off the size of your house, take your focus off the luxuriousness of your home, take your focus off of your, off of your quality as a cook, instead focus on how God works powerfully in the lives of people who come together over meals in homes, because God does do that. I want to encourage you, if you haven't already, please step out of your boat and trust God's power and invite somebody over to your home. I'll, in, I'll announce the uh, next challenge at the end of this sermon, so be listening for that. I also want to give you a quick Bible reading challenge update. So far in 2018, we as a congregation have read 139 books of the Bible. I know a lot of people are going through those long books of Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers. I want to encourage you to keep plowing through those books. Um, the numbers aren't adding up very quickly right now, but the, the numbers will increase very quickly as we move into things like the minor prophets when things move much faster. But good job. Continue to read. Continue to report your results. We won't be giving these updates as frequently this year as we have the last couple of years, but that doesn't mean we've stopped believing in the importance of regular Bible reading and regular Bible study. We here at Netherwood and the leadership of this church are deeply committed to God's word. We remain convinced that God's word has transforming power. We want all of you to know that we believe in the power of God's word. We also want you to know that we believe in the power of prayer. That's why we are a praying church. We believe sincerely that prayer is powerful and prayer is effective. We'd love to pray for you. If you have something that you'd like to bring to this congregation or just to its eldership so that we can lift your request up to God, we would encourage you to pull out one of the green cards that you'll find in front of you, fill out your prayer request, drop it in one of our collection boxes, and we will honor that request. You can find two collection boxes at the back of the auditorium. You can find another one through these double doors. We, we believe in the power of prayer. We also want you to know that we believe in the power of baptism. In today's sermon, you're going to hear the Apostle Paul talk about that particular power. So if you are here and you haven't been baptized, I really want to encourage you to listen closely to Paul. 
as he talks about the powerful gift of baptism, as he talks about how God works powerfully through baptism, as he talks about this gift that God has made available to everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ. And if you want to know more about how to accept this great gift of baptism that God has made available to you, we'd love to have that conversation with you. To start that conversation, we'd ask you to use the backside of that green card, and you'll find on there a place to fill out your contact information and a box that you can check that says, I would like to talk to an elder or a minister about baptism. If you would do that and drop that in one of the boxes, we'll contact you right away and we'll start that conversation. We believe in the power of baptism. Finally, we want everyone to know that we believe in the power of the church. The power of the church universal and certainly the power of the church local. We believe that God works powerfully through his children when they unite together in his name. So if you don't have a church home, I want to encourage you to make Netherwood Park that church home. It's a place where we can worship together, a place where we can serve together, a place where we can watch as God works powerfully through us to accomplish things that we could never accomplish on our own. If you are interested in being a part of this church, making Netherwood your church family, would encourage you to use that same card, fill out your contact information, and check the box about church membership and drop it in the box and one of the elders or ministers will contact you right away so we could talk to you about what it means to be a church and what it means to be a part of this church. There's power. There's power in the word. There's power in prayer. There's power in baptism. There's power in the church. And we want to acknowledge that all of that power doesn't come from us. That power comes from our all-powerful God. And as we've been moving through Romans, Paul has been reminding us that our all-powerful God worked powerfully on our behalf through the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. And we have been affirming frequently as we've been moving through Romans our belief in that power, in the power of the gospel. And I know it's been a while, but won't you join with me this morning in affirming your belief in the power of the gospel. I want to ask you to boldly and powerfully repeat after me Paul's words from Romans chapter 1. I am not ashamed of the gospel. Because it is the power of God. For the salvation of everyone who believes. And all the church says, Amen. Amen. Let me begin today's sermon by asking you an important question and a powerful question. And that question is, who are you? Who are you? If you met someone you didn't know today and they ask you that question, just who are you? How would you answer that question? Who are you? What's your identity? What makes you you. And I ask that question, I want you to think about your answer to that question because today as we're in Romans chapter 6, we're going to see that Paul's focus is also on identity. And we're going to see that there is power in our identity. 
Several weeks ago, as we were in the fifth chapter of Romans, we heard Paul as he passionately defended his notion and the truth that all of our salvation is dependent on faith and grace. We heard Paul say that it's Jesus' work on the cross that brings salvation. It's not our works. We heard Paul say that it's the blood of Christ that justifies us before God. It's not our blood, sweat, and tears. We heard Paul say that the good that God accomplishes through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it's that that brings salvation. It's not the good that we do. And then after Paul forcefully demonstrated that it's God's gift of grace and grace alone that saves us, he knows, he absolutely knows there are going to be some questions lingering. He knows there's going to be some lingering questions about what the free gift of grace leaves us free to do. So as chapter 6 opens, he begins to address those questions. In Romans chapter 6, verse 1, he says, What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? Paul, shall we go on sinning so that grace may abound? Paul obviously knows his audience. Paul obviously knows us. And he knows where our minds are going to take us. And Paul knows that our minds are going to take us to these kind of places. Where we ask questions like, so Paul, if being good doesn't really buy us anything, then why should we be good? And Paul, let me ask you this question. If I'm saved by grace instead of works, then why should I work? Why not just keep on sinning and let grace do its thing? I mean, if God's grace is so great, why not just let his grace abound more and more? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? And as you might expect, Paul's short answer is no. Various translations try to capture Paul's horror at this way of thinking. So one says, by no means should you go on sinning so that grace may increase. Another version says, may it never be. Another says, God forbid. And my favorite, the Phillips translation says this, shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? What a ghastly thought. Shall we go on sinning so that grace may continue to increase? What a ghastly thought. That's Paul's short answer. What a ghastly thought. But if you know Paul, Paul never stops with a short answer. Paul continues on. He continues on with an explanation of why we shouldn't even consider the notion that we would go on sinning so that grace may increase. Paul doesn't leave it there. So he begins this longer explanation of why recipients of God's grace should be good and why they should work and why they should be obedient to their God. And this longer answer is all about identity. It's all about who we are. And Paul begins that identity answer this way. In verse 2, he says, we died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Now, Paul, why not keep on sinning? Paul's going to tell us it's because that's no longer who we are. We've had an identity change. 
Paul's going to tell us that we were separated from God and we were enslaved by sin, but now we're different. We're new creatures. We have a new identity. Now we're reconciled to God. Now we've been set free from our old master. We aren't who we were. We're no longer separated and enslaved. Now we're united. Now we are free. And Paul's going to tell us, and we know this to be true, that who we are, our identity, in many ways drives and determines our behavior. Who we are determines what we do. We know that to be true, right? A kind person does kind things, but a cruel person does cruel things. What I am can be seen through what I do. And that's why Paul's so concerned with identity. That's why Paul spends so much time in this letter and in other letters telling us who we are, reminding us who we are. He does that because identity matters. So he tells the church in Corinth, he reminds them of who they are. And as he does that, he tells us who we are. In the 12th chapter of 1 Corinthians, Paul says, The body is a unit, though it is made up of many parts. And though its parts are many, they form one body. And so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free. And we were all given the one spirit to drink. So Paul, should we keep on sinning so that grace will abound? Well, by no means. At one time, maybe you were a Jew, maybe you were a Greek, maybe that was your identity, or maybe your identity was you were a slave or a free person, but none of that matters anymore. That's not your identity. Now you have a new identity. Who are you? Paul reminds us that we're part of the very body of Christ that takes its nourishment from the Holy Spirit. And should the body of Christ go on sinning so that grace may increase? What a ghastly thought. And it wasn't just the Christians in Corinth that needed to be reminded of their identity. So did those in Galatia and the church in Colossae and the church in Ephesus. They and us, we all need identity reminders. Let me just give you a few more quick examples from Paul of the power of identity. In Galatians chapter 2, Paul says, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And then in chapter 3, he writes, All who were baptized into Christ have clothed themselves with Christ, robed themselves with Christ. Then in the third chapter of Colossians, He reminds us that we have been raised with Christ. And he reminds us that we died and our life is now hidden in Christ. And that Christ is all and is in all. Now that Christ is in us and Christ is with us. And now that Christ clothes us, should we go on sinning so that grace may increase? What a ghastly thought. Of course that's not what we should do because that's no longer who we are. So who are you? Paul says you are the one in whom Christ lives. Who are you? Well, Paul says you are one of the baptized who is now clothed with Christ. Who are you? 
Paul says, you are now raised with Christ. You are hidden with Christ. And Christ is in you. And Christ is all of you. Paul says, that's who you are. And that brings us back to Romans chapter 6. Now with that background, listen as Paul reminds the Roman Christians and as he reminds us of who we are and why we don't go on sinning. Verse 3. Paul writes, don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Jesus Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too might live a new life. And since we have been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. For we know, we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with. That we should no longer be slaves to sin. Because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. Now, now since we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. Now that death he died, he died to sin once for all, and the life he lives, he lives to God. So Paul, why be good? Why work? Why stop sinning? Why be obedient to God? Paul's answer is because that isn't who you are. That's who you were. Paul says your identity has changed. Who are you? What's your new identity? Paul says your new identity is you are the baptized. You are those who have been united with Christ. You've been united with his death. You've been united with his life. Who are you? You are the baptized. I've done a lot of preparation and study for this part of Romans, Romans chapter 6. I have to tell you, one of the really heartbreaking things in doing that study is how many times I've read and heard, how many times I've seen the amount of effort that well-meaning scholars and teachers and preachers and others have expended in trying to explain away the significance of baptism, the significance of water baptism by immersion. It's heartbreaking to read as people passionately affirm their belief that God worked powerfully through Jesus' death and powerfully through his burial and powerfully through his resurrection to once and for all defeat sin and death. And then in the next breath, watch as they claim that baptism doesn't really accomplish anything. I think it's tragic That many of the same well-intentioned people who are so certain that God worked tangibly through Jesus' physical death. Tangibly through his physical blood. Tangibly through a physical tomb and a physical resurrection. Then discount the reality that God works powerfully. As we are physically buried in physical water and then are physically raised from that water. It's important that you know that I believe and that this church believes and its eldership believes. And more importantly, that Paul believed. 
and that Paul taught that God does work powerfully through the physical death, the physical burial, the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ, and that he continues to work powerfully. Continues to work powerfully through baptism as we are physically buried and physically resurrected in physical water. That's what Paul says God does through our physical baptism. He says we're buried into Christ Jesus and buried into his death. He says we're united with Christ. We're grafted into Christ. And he says just as Jesus died, we also die. We die to our old self, our old identity. He says in baptism we're buried with Christ. Not as a final act, but as a new beginning. We're buried with Jesus Christ, so we, like Jesus, can be resurrected to a new life. And he says, as we die with Jesus, our old entanglements also die with us. We leave our slavery behind in the water. We who were once enslaved to sin have now been set free by God. God sets us free. And since we are now free from sin, now that we're dead to sin, we're now free to be alive. Alive to our new master, alive to our God. Baptism gives us a new identity. See, once we're united with Christ, once we've joined together with Christ, once we've been grafted to Christ, you can't separate who I am from who he is. Do I understand exactly how God makes that happen in baptism? I want to confess I certainly do not completely understand. I don't understand it any better than I understand exactly how God raised Jesus from the dead several thousand years ago and used that sacrifice to forgive my sins now. I don't completely understand that either. But just because I don't completely and fully understand how God did it and how God does it, It doesn't mean that I don't fully believe it is true. I do believe it's true. And I also want to say this. If I was able to fully understand God, he wouldn't be much of a God, would he? He'd be a lot like me instead of who he is. See, our God is much. Our God is much in every way. So should we keep on sinning? Keep on sinning so that God's grace may be on full display. God forbid. Perish the thought. Because that isn't who we are. No, we are the baptized. We are those who are united with Christ. We don't go on sinning because that isn't who we are. That's who we were. Well, you might ask, what about after we're baptism, after we're baptized, after we're baptized, you may be like me and have had this experience. In the days after I was baptized, I was disappointed to find out that I didn't really feel all that changed. I was disappointed to find out that I had the same impulses that I had before, the same lusts that I had before, the same weaknesses that I had before. They didn't magically disappear I would love to be able to stand before you and report that I emerged from the water perfectly Christ-like, 
clearly a brand new creature who never sinned again, but that would be a lie. That's not the way it was for me. It's not the way it was for Paul. It's not the way it was for your elders. It's not the way it was for anyone else who is here in this place. See, the reality is once we have died, we have to keep on dying. Once we've been made new, we have to keep on becoming new. Which is why Paul next writes this in verse 11. He says, in the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to Christ Jesus. Alive to God in Christ Jesus. What's Paul saying? Well, Paul is saying that once God has done his work in baptism, there's still work to be done. And part of that work is ours. Paul's using business and accounting language here. He says, count yourselves dead to sin. Number yourselves dead to sin. Credit yourselves dead to sin. Credit yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. See, Paul's saying that we should be making daily deposits into our death account and into our life account. Paul's saying that we have to continue to develop our new identity by daily dying to sin. We continue to clothe ourselves with Christ by daily living to Christ. When I make myself, when I count myself alive to Christ, I'm building up my new life in Christ's account. I'm continuing to become what Christ died for me to be. And when I make myself, when I count myself dead to sin, I'm building up my death account. And these accounts aren't like our retirement accounts. You should check these accounts every single day. You should always be checking these bank statements. And people may think you're crazy, and you probably are, so it's okay. Just let them think that you are crazy. But you should be looking at your life every day. You should be looking at these accounts and saying, yep, I'm still dead. I'm still dead to sin, and yep, I'm still alive. I'm still alive to Christ. That's what your accounts should say you are, because that is who you are. That's who you are because you've been united with Christ, and your new identity is dead to sin, and it's alive to Christ. Which is why Paul is able to close this section of his letter by saying this. He says, therefore, he says, since you are dead to sin and alive to Christ, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. He says, do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness. For sin shall not be your master. Because you're not under law. You're under grace. Because we're united with Jesus Christ, we are free. We're free to stop offering our bodies as tools of unrighteousness. We're free to instead offer ourselves to God as tools of righteousness. We're free to stop sinning. 
We don't go on sinning so that grace may abound. We stop sinning because grace already does abound. Who are you? I'll tell you who you are. You have been set free from sin to live this new identity in Jesus Christ. That's who you are. No wonder Paul isn't ashamed of the gospel. Let's pray. Father, you are all powerful. And Father, you work power even in our weaknesses. And Father, you worked powerfully through your son Jesus Christ on the cross and as you resurrected him from the grave so that we might have a new identity in him. Father, help us to to grasp, to hang on, to cling to our new identity, to robe ourselves with Jesus Christ so that we can truly say that we no longer live, but Christ Jesus lives in us. Father, help us live the reality of who you have made us to be. It's the name of Jesus, our Savior, we pray. Amen. Uncomfortable challenge number five. This is a challenge that's come about just because of some recent events. We realize there's a need that we as a congregation can fill. And so this is our challenge. Is sometime during this next week, go buy a fast food restaurant and buy a gift card. Somewhere in the $10 to $20 range. Next Sunday, bring that gift card to church. Drop it in the collection plate or drop it in one of the prayer box collection things. And the reason that we're collecting these is that we have found that one of the needs that families have when they have hospital family members is they have the need to be able to easily feed their families. And the easiest way to do that is through fast food gift cards. So we would love to be able to equip our elders, our ministers, and other people who go to visit these families to be able to take gift cards with them to at least ease that burden for their families as they have loved ones in the hospital. Suggestions of places of where you might get these. Subway is a good place because a couple of the hospitals have subways in them. McDonald's is a great place because there are McDonald's everywhere and everybody knows that they can go there and get a meal. But any fast food place would welcome, be welcomed. So again, in the $10 to $20 range, if everybody who is able to do that will do that, we'll be able to equip our elders, our ministers, and others who go to the hospital for months to come to be able to help our family. So please get out of the boat, take this challenge, and we'll report next week how many gift cards we were able to collect. So as we end today, I want us to end by standing up and singing to Jesus. Singing to our Lord, the one who has united us, the one who has set us free, the one who is our all and is our all in all. Let's stand. Let's sing.